Hello. Well, the dust has settled. Uh, we're here to discuss the, the aftermath of Hell Week in Parliament and to get out of our metropolitan bubble. We've come to a, a restaurant in, in Hampstead, which is very nice. It's, yeah. it's leafy. It's very leafy. <laughs> I don't remain or leave, I don't know, but it's very leafy. It's absolutely <laughs> It's pretty fucking Romanian here, <laughs> yeah, to be honest. Who <laughs> yeah. says we never go north of Soho? Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, I'm Andrew, I'm the producer. That's Ian, you can hear yes, hello, away. hello, hello. Um, Ian, you called it right on the podcast, didn't you? Don't worry about March, worry about the end of June. Yeah, well, unless we do have to worry about March. So we're not quite there yet. I mean, that, that obviously seems to be where we're, where we're going to. Um, we're not... I mean, people, people yesterday were like, right, that's it, it's confirmed. We're not going to be leaving on March 29th. And you just think, no, it's not fucking confirmed because Britain is not in charge of its destiny anymore. It is now in the hands of 27 other countries. Mm-hmm. And it really sovereignty is. for you. <laughs> sovereignty yeah. working out really well. She has hands. So, like, it's not with the previous things where you would often have, okay, decisions would be reached, mandates, whatever. You would have officials start to make these calls or, like, Barnier would start sort of insinuating people one way or another. This really is a political decision that is taken by the heads of 27 member states and any one of them can veto it. So there's a perfectly good chance that they will say no, or there's another chance that they will attach conditions that are considered unacceptable to the Westminster Parliament, that they'll say, no, we're not fucking doing extension if it's going to last for a year and requires us to do X, Y, and Z, and then we'll fall out. So although it doesn't look like we're leaving on March 29th, there's still a pretty good chance that that could fucking take place by automatic operation of law. Yes, it's like there's, 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 there's been a, there's been a lot of angry uh, angry people on Twitter um, about the kind of well, we've ruled out no deal. I think by now the message is getting through that we've we've not ruled. It's always on the table. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is unless, the table. It is the table <laughs> unless something else comes up. But isn't it the case that like you know law says March 29th, but we've in political terms, we've ruled out no deal, ruled out May's deal, even though it's back next week, ruled out, supposedly, another vote. We've ruled out everything, <laughs> politically, <laughs> haven't we? But that's, that's, that's the magic of the delay. Well, also, we're not ruling out any of these things. I mean, you know, nothing gets nothing gets ruled out. We can keep on saying it as much as we want, but it's not ruled out. You know, when Rhys Mogg tweets yesterday that because there's been a vote on a second referendum and it's been rejected, it's now been ruled out. You think, no, fucking hasn't me. When yeah. Theresa May loses her vote, that doesn't mean it's ruled out. When the Morthouse compromise A, B, C, X, Y, Z gets voted down for the umpteenth time, that's not ruled out. Nothing's really ruled out because people are constantly scrambling around trying to find some kind of solution. And the only thing really that's been ruled in that is of any real interest this week is the fact that the government conceded in order to stave off defeat what looked like a series of indicative votes. Mm. We don't know the context. They will presumably pull some kind of scheming, cynical bullshit because that is the manner in which they always seem to do this stuff. But it seems like they have given up that thing and that they are going to do it. And it was very narrow. I mean, the Ben Amendment was lost very narrowly. Super narrow. Yeah. Um, mm. What difference, where would we be if that had passed, if you'd had, like, one person go the other way? Much better place, I think. So, um, you'd need a couple, a couple of people, so it would have been even. It would have been even if one person had gone, and then Burko would have had to go in for the right. status quo. Yeah. Poor, poor John, he would have fucking hated that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that, that happens, that didn't happen. Um, May would still have got her vote uh, for the third time next week, but immediately afterwards, MPs would have taken over the way that things operated and had control, essentially, over the timetabling of how things operate in the Commons. Um, and that seems to me much better, even though the government has essentially promised something similar, because it stops them from playing their weird games, and it actually puts MPs in the driver's seat. You basically fundamentally alter the way 
that British government is conducted. You say the government is dead. It's it is dead. It won't lie down. Fucking dead. <laughs> it no, dead. But it is. I mean, if, if it is whipping against itself and losing, it is a dead government. If it cannot tell its ministers how to vote, if it will not whip them in any direction, having three votes on everything, it is a dead government because it has no discipline. So on that basis, it is time, obviously, for MPs to take over. But once again, they've chosen not to take the opportunity. Well, there was, there was a quite the word you talk about whipping. There was amazing scenes this week, like Steve Barkley closing in favour of the government and going to vote against the motion that he had just closed in favour of. Incredible. Where does this fit in the league of disastrous parliamentary weeks? Do you think? Since Brexit. Well, let's go forever. Come on. <laughs> Is it you know, Munich, Chamberlain? No, you see, in all those cases, <laughs> <You love> Munich. <laughs> but things changed in all those cases. It was the beginning of a trigger. You know, if you mm. think, you know, speak for England or whatever. Yeah. These are moments that things fundamentally altered and that the Parliament actually started behaving. Now it isn't. It's just completely lost. And that goes for all sides at the moment. You're right, Barclay's speech was a staggering exercise in hypocrisy. One that he began by praising the integrity of Keir Starmer's commitment to a, to a second referendum and Chris Leslie's sincerity, these are quotes, and then went on to do a speech at which he then did the precise opposite action to the manner in which he had argued for. So you just think that, astonishing. Can you, ex- can you explain, yeah. for people who maybe haven't been following it closely, can you explain why like MPs. people who were, you know, why the government ended up whipping against its own? Okay, well, no, it didn't. In this, in this case, it didn't. Oh, sorry, yes. So there's, there's two separate Why Barclay ended up... So Barclay, I mean, for the start, basically you have a government motion that says we're going to extend Article 50. It might be short, it might be long, but there's going to be an extension. Um, now, if, if the Tories had been in charge, that would have been rejected by distance. May was relying on Labour and opposition votes. She issued a free vote, which means there's no whipping because she didn't think that she could carry her party with her. And so the only way of making sure the cabinet didn't fall apart, that she visibly lost total control over the party, was to say, do whatever you want. So many of them, Liam Fox, um, uh, quite a few others, I think there was about six or seven cabinet figures voted against the motion, who otherwise maybe would have resigned. Lots of the people who voted against it, by the way, on the Tory benches, would actually support an extension. It's just that they don't have the balls to stand up to their local association and say it, so they get to hide behind the cover of everyone else doing Stephen Barclay is the Brexit secretary. He does a speech, which he has to, suggesting it's the right thing to do. And then once it comes to the vote, as it's a free vote, he then votes against the very thing that he just suggested people do. So, I mean, it, that is a fucking spectacle, but it at least saves you from what we had earlier the day before, which is the government whipping against things that it then subsequently loses. Yeah, you see, even then I was like jumbling because it just seems like a very long time since we recorded the podcast on Wednesday. I know. I mean, and I wasn't even there. I mean, probably like, eternity for you. Like Monday. You know, Monday is the way. Like mon- you know when you you know when you go to the states and like you wake up one morning and then when you go to bed in the states you're like, how can it have been this morning? This yeah, morning when like, I was in Gatwick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's how this week fucking feels right now. It's like Friday morning and like Monday morning Something feels wrong. like it was at least three weeks ago. Can we? Uh, there's, there's something else I think some people find confusing, which is the um, the disagreement among Remainers, yeah. People's Vote campaign, and around the kind of uh, the the and other opposition, uh, you know, all the other parties um, pushing for a People's Vote, and why this was felt to be uh, the wrong time, and whether its defeat means anything. Yeah, this is the most. This was some of the stupidest and most disreputable behaviour that I've seen from Remainers over the last three years, I think. So there's been a long-term strategic dispute within sort of most of the Remain groups, including the People's Vote, especially between the people organising People's Vote and many of the MPs who support them in Parliament. And that is basically, at what point do you put 
the motion forward or the amendment forward to start pushing for it. They know that it's likely to be defeated because you don't have the numbers. You just don't have the numbers. Even if you get Labour on side, you're probably going to need, let's say, about 40 or 50 Tory MPs, in addition to the ones we already have, like Dominic Grieve, to flip over. That's what you need. Mm -hmm. Um, In certain circumstances, I think that's doable. We've talked about that, you know, the Carl Amendment stuff, where you go, look, we'll pass May's deal if you hold a vote. And in that kind of circumstance, with enough other avenues closed down, I think it's doable. But you're going to lose at the beginning. Mm. Their argument is, once we lose once they will be able to suggest that people's vote is dead. And of course they're going to make Yeah, they do. Of course, and they will. Of course they will. The counter-argument is, look, we need to be part of the conversation. We're running out of time. We need to start holding these votes now and let them go. So the counter-argument then would rely on things like, let's say, Cooper's Amendment, the Cooper-Benz stuff about taking control of the parliamentary timetable. No one's suggesting that's dead. It was defeated yesterday, close enough to have a chance. It was defeated about two weeks ago. Yeah. You know, these things get defeated a lot. May's deal gets defeated. It's still there. We're in the game of trying to show what kind of numbers do you have. And by virtue of the Ben Amendment from yesterday getting more than the Cooper Amendment got before on taking over, on Parliament taking over, you start to show that there's a groundswell of support for it. Now, those are the two arguments. And I personally couldn't give a shit which one of those arguments you pick. I kind of get both sides. I understand. Then, in the morning, the Tiggers put forward, Sarah Woodison with the Tiggers put forward an amendment saying, we want a people's vote. And that kind of put a spanner in the works for a lot of them. What they did not do at People's Vote or anywhere else was to take any kind of flexibility of the situation that they were in. So instead of saying, well, fuck it, we didn't want this, but we'd better double down behind it, as, for instance, the SNP did, they suddenly said, well, no, we're basically going to encourage people to abstain. Mm. And then you got this appalling fucking spectacle of People's Vote put out a statement saying we think people should have, basically saying we, should, we think they should have saying we don't think it's the right time. This gives Labour an out. So Keir Starmer basically ends up almost reading the statement out at the dispatch box because Labour's always going to take any opportunity it can to not live up to its own commitments. Yeah. Then you get the obscene fucking spectacle of all these people's vote supporters sat in their seats in the Commons as that vote is taking place and making that defeat quite catastrophically bad as 300 and something votes to 82. Mm. An appalling state of affairs. Subri shouting shame on you to Starmer across the chamber. You think... Don't talk to him like that. He hasn't done anything to yes, warrant yes, that sort of behaviour. Well, well, I don't even think it's her own bloody fault. I, don't, I actually would, would, would be more sympathetic towards her, but it doesn't mean you start talking to Keir Starmer yeah, in that manner. You're all sort of, you're, you're supposed to be allies together. And just this complete implosion of how it operates. But at no point was anyone from the People's Vote organisation, no matter what you think of the idea of putting down the amendment, needs to think, if we are telling MPs to abstain on our core proposition, one week before a march where we're asking people to go out and demonstrate in favour of it, we look just as jaded and cynical and insane as all the people on the other side who are voting against the things that they fully believe in. To be fair, mm-hmm. they've only done it once. Everybody else has been doing it consistently for three years, behaving cynically and disreputably. Yeah, but, that, but, but, they want, but they want people to come out to a march. They do. It's, so if there's anybody that's kind of... Is anybody confused by this or put off by it, mm. they might just think, do you know what, I'm not going to make the effort, particularly if it's people that are coming from outside of London, you know, where it's like it's a really big commitment. And, and that, that seems sort of dismaying because people are like, well, what exactly am I marching for? Yeah. Is everybody here on the same page? Yeah. And also, true. what about our sense of authenticity and commitment? Now, we're fucking... These people have been losing their minds for three years and acting in the most jaded tactical, demeaning fucking manner. The leaders, was it? Yeah. Absolutely. Now, 
Remainers have kept their powder dry, they've been rational, they've been principled, they've been caring about the, what goes on in their country. And to see them suddenly start doing this kind of subterfuge tactic is so fucking depressing to me. I had to spend like quite a lot of yesterday afternoon after I started basically complaining about this stuff. People go, I'm not going to come to the march. It was like, no, come to the march. Mm. It's important yeah. that you come to the march. But let's also be clear that, you know, the, the People's Vote leadership is increasingly, catastrophically fucking stupid. This also comes, of course, after their numerous attacks on Norway, all of which is part and parcel of the same idea, this last man standing tactic. Now, when they attack Norway, they undermine our own plan B if we lose this thing. Yeah. All of it is part of the same thing. Wait and wait and wait to the vote. Wait till everyone else is dead. And that is party political strategizing by people who have previously only worked in political parties and are basically acting in this manner in exactly the same way they used to do when they were in Labour attacking the Lib Dems, which is to treat any other group as competition, as something that must be annihilated. This is, I mean, really, really bad behaviour. Well, They've got pe- to improve. People's vote, the whole people's vote idea, because uh, obviously there are people who support it who aren't part of the campaign, mm. came out of, you know, after a long period of... Uh, of people kind of disagreeing, not being on the same page. This was the kind of the solution, the way to bring people together. Mm, exactly. And I think, and so it's, it's it's sort of somewhat heartbreaking to see activists who I support, you know, not quite at each other's throats, but certainly not not lining mm. up. They, they look. They, this this has happened now. It can be put to one side. This is, it's not like something terrible has been lost. There's absolutely no damage. I mean, of course, Jacob Rees-Mogg's and Julian Lewis are going to jump up and say that this is all over. Obviously, well, they said that anyway. Yeah. They said that anyway. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't matter. The march, I think, will still be a success. Those guys need to sit down and make sure that it works. But that involves not just the Tigalog showing a bit more restraint. It also involves the People's Vote organisation showing a little bit more flexibility and a bit more openness to other ideas. And unless those guys sit down and start demonstrating a bit more solidarity with each other we're going to keep on seeing this kind of pointless attacks within the movement. Let's have a look at um, May, third time's a charm, bringing the deal back. Is Groundhog May? Is there any... <laughs> pop your head out of your hole, Ian. Is there any... Do you, do you think the, uh, the, the slow crumbling of the ERG and the DUP resistance is, is, is going to get her over the line? Is she going to make any no, substantial changes? I mean? No, I don't think you can. What they want, what they've been bringing Jeffrey Cox in, is to try and get... Amazingly, I think they just forced him into a room, got the knives out and been like, Cox... Say something about the fucking Vienna Convention, you son of a bitch. The Vienna Convention. I really, yeah. really hope that Jeffrey Cox said it means nothing to me. It means, it means nothing. His duty, his duty as an Englishman. As a Come on, raise your banter game, Cox. Come on. Yeah. So they got him in the room and they put him in a headlock they and they give him a half Nelson and said, Come on, Jeff. Right. I think, is, is it Article 64? I think it was 62. <laughs> I, can't remember, I can't remember which one. It's I, 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 meant to, yeah. I meant to have a look at it this week, but everything was a bit, a bit hectic. Um, it doesn't do, I mean, I've already been reliably informed by several lawyers, it doesn't do what I think it does, and even if it did, you would only be able to cancel the whole arrangement, not just the backstop part, so the whole thing would collapse. However, they want to present it as a unilateral exit mechanism. I've got an Article 64 fact, which I found, I found on the respected academic research journal Twitter.com, which is that you can only activate Article 64 if there's been a fundamental change of circumstances. And right. And one of the test cases is that Hungary tried to uh, withdraw from a treaty to build a nuclear reactor. And the fundamental change of circumstances they cited was that the, the USSR had ceased to exist 
That was the fundamental. And the international courts of justice still said, no, that's not fundamental enough for you. Fucking hell. So you can have a treaty with a country that doesn't exist anymore, and that's not fundamental enough to obviate Article 64. So, and also, the other one, this is great, I pinched all this off David Allen Green's timeline, by the uh-huh. way. David Allen Green, you described Article 64 as flat earth right. stuff. And the other aspect of it is... Mm that uh, it can only be invoked for unforeseen circumstances. So if you say, it's okay, we're going to sign this, we're going to put this deal through because then we can activate Article 64 if we don't like it. It is by definition foreseen circumstances. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. But also... Who the fuck is going to sign a deal with anyone when, as they as as they're waiting for it, they're like, "Tell you what, this yeah. is how we'll detonate the deal when we don't think we like it anymore." It's like a little kid crossing their fingers behind their back and going, it's it's "Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly." Or, but you invited the TV cameras. Yeah, I've yeah. agreed to sign this treaty. Not. <laughs> <laughs> so that's their big plan, and they think they might be able to shave off some. And you know what? They probably can. Not on the basis of those legal assurances. They'll probably be able to shave it off on their real tactic, which is by virtue of the wording of the extension motion, which is to say, we can have it short, just a short little extension if you support the deal, but if you don't support the deal, it's going to go on for fucking years in the European elections and there'll be conditions, blah, blah. And that's the real proposition. I like seeing, um, obviously thinking long-term for the future of the podcast, I quite like Patrick Flynn's uh, tweet where he was just like, I've been told that the EU (laughs) wants an extension of four years. I love this. Four years! <laughs> at, which point, at which point there was like a collapse of the will to live. Even, even ardent Romaniac supporters were like, no, I don't, no. Just, every time a Libra says, um, I've heard, <laughs> <laughs> they're lying. Yeah. So you got that from uh, Richard Tice, I think is his name, the guy from Leave Means Leave, who constantly would write to me on Twitter being like, well, I've had all these meetings with WTO bosses. By the way, there are no WTO bosses. They literally don't exist. And think. they're there to... Yeah, exactly. I haven't been invited into the secret it's Illuminati room. Under, underground. And they're saying yeah. Article 24 is great. You get the same thing from Daniel Kinswinski or whatever. Mm. When he's going on, well, I've been told that all EU members will have to join the Euro and that's the new rules. <laughs> and you're like, you haven't, Daniel, because it's fucking you, not you've true. You've been told by Aston McVeigh. Yeah. She's full of shit exactly. as well. And she got told by the Daily Express yes. or whatever. Like, you've been told by, by your shadowy yes. So no, it isn't. They, there is a lot of dispute in the EU about how to handle this. The one thing that there's almost uniformity on is they're not going to allow it to be rolling. Um, apart from that, there isn't much. There are genuinely figures who might be encouraged to just say no to any request for extension. There is certain people, even around Macron's uh, cabinet, uh, who think that no deal might actually be quite good for a, lot of them. For, for a country like France which is going to take a massive pounding in the short term. For a lot of them, think medium term, strategically, this could actually be quite yeah. good for us. There are voices in Europe which welcome no deal. And Farage has been... And Farage has obviously been trying to, to get... Fashy mates Salvini. in Italy, yeah. yeah, yeah. How likely do you think that is? That, that, so I don't think it's likely. Fascist I, somewhere. Oh, I think that they would, they would happily do it if there was no cost to them. And the thing is that there is a cost. You know, if you've got all of the EU member states, if you've got 26 other member states going, we want to extend and you choose to use your veto, you can do it, but what are the repercussions next time you're talking about something you really do fucking care about? Now, let's say you're Salvini. There are plenty of situations yeah. in which he's going to really want to store up that political capital for stuff he's you're going not to gonna do t- in the Can future. you imagine wasting all your political capital on Nigel Farage? For Nigel Farage, exactly. Yeah. Which is sort of the problem with nationalists, is they don't really have much of a sense of collective endeavour by definition, right? Yeah. in the name. Yeah, it's almost like there's an issue with the whole idea. Um, so I don't, think, I don't think that'll stop it, but it could. There are other figures who are going to want to say, well, look, why would we keep on allowing this to contaminate our system? Think about capacity 
that is being asked from at a European level, just on the basis of dealing with this ship? Why should they allow it to keep on going? And they are better prepared than we are. Many countries in Europe are broadly unaffected by no deal. Some of them are very far away. They barely do any trade with us at all. But that would be kind of pretty... I mean, that would be an existential shock for Remainers if basically the EU 27 mm. gave us no deal. Yeah, well, and all the disaster real? could then be blamed on them and not the government. Yes, and rightly so. A proper so, sorry, sir, you're drunk, you're leaving moment. That's your cab, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It could happen. Yeah, yeah. it absolutely can. But, or, or I think more realistically, the conditions could be such that the British Parliament then rejects it. And, and, you know, it's perfectly possible that they're going to say, that they could just sound like one year, that they could even say something like two years, and go, but on the condition that you provide us with some sort of idea of what it is that you are fucking doing and how you're going to come to a decision. So are we having European elections, though? Uh, well, that's unclear. I mean, the government's position now is, if May's deal doesn't get through, then it's on for a long time and we have to take part in it. Now, that's good. That means that my concerns have not been realised. Even before, my concern was that she would get us into the short extension and essentially guarantee no deal versus her deal by not taking part in those elections. Mm. Actually, she's doing something subtly different. Before the extension is asked for, she's using the European elections to try and bully the ERG into supporting her deal in the first place. That is is far preferable to me because if her threat to the ERG doesn't work, then suddenly she's sort of talked herself into having to hold the European elections, which is a very good thing, because that mm. buys us more time. To me, once again, I've said that a million times, there is nothing more important than us taking part in those European elections. That is the only way to buy more time. If not, the door shuts latest July 1st, and we're in a lot of fucking trouble. Mm. What, what kind of turnout do you think we would see if, uh, we, if our government reluctantly staged European elections? I think our lot would probably turn out in numbers, wouldn't they? Agreed. Would the other lot turn up in numbers? Yes. They love the idea. You talk to the UKIP guys, they <laughs> oh fucking want it. It was their last chance, isn't it? They, no, but they, but, no, but that's the shit that works for them. They, they do well in those elections. It's all identity stuff. They can turn it into a new referendum. They're keen, man. And I think the Remainers are keen. The only people that aren't keen is like Labour and the Conservative Party. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. um, but, I mean, you would possibly see... Uh, UKIP and also Farage's Brexit party running at the same time, wouldn't you? Now that he's cut his ties with UKIP, because... Mm. I wonder whether they wouldn't set up something different, you know? And I, and I wonder whether Remainers wouldn't try and do the same thing. Mm. Yeah, but you'd imagine mm. that a shared ticket, mm. non-aggression pact between, uh, you know, the, the Dems and whomever. Yeah, exactly. And also just something plain and simple, which, which would have odd... You know, results. Like, I mean, you take, you know, MEPs that we've had on the show before, you know, for Labour or whatever, and some of the Tories, who have been, you know, decent Remain campaigners and may well find themselves unseated by a Remain sort of campaign that was putting its own sort of MEPs and that kind of thing. It would be who mad knows? if, like, Seb mm. Dance, like, exactly. lost his seat. It's so criminal. Of, like, yeah, yeah. very well, Unless Seb Dance ran as an independent anti-Brexit candidate. Yeah. Because well, you have to, uh, have to ask some of these guys... What they think their future is in the Labour Party as it currently stands. I just for the foreseeable future. I would like to ask a Labour question, which for once is not really to do with Corbyn, which was that you had these four members of the Shadow Cabinet uh, resigning or Mm. being sacked Mm. um, because they voted explicitly against a referendum. Mm. Um, And there's been talk for some time that once you've got this hardcore of like, what, half a dozen really people like, you know, Hoey and Flint and Stringer, man. Um, But then. What do you think the numbers are of, of Labour MPs um, who really don't want a second referendum 
but haven't kind of stuck their heads above the parapet to say it. I don't know. I, I, I would honestly expect that if Labour imposed a three-line whip on supporting a people's vote, yeah. they would probably lose... I mean, I, I, would, I would have thought it would be about three dozen MPs. Right, OK. I, I, which ultimately you have to collect up that plus another 12 from the Tory side, and that's, that's the job. But, you know, this thing either happens in a great big sort of tide because there's no other, there's no other avenue out of the problem or it's not going to happen at all. But I have to say, the last few weeks, well, increasingly I hear the words revocation more than I hear the words referendum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And more and more. And it almost, there's almost like a moment of sort of... I, I've even mentioned to a, sort of a few Brexiters sort of before doing debates or whatever, just being like, you know, you might well learn to... to to regret not having paid more attention to the referendum thing because there are more extreme propositions out there on the Remain side. Mm, <laughs> and the more yeah. you block off these kind of avenues, the more you radicalise. I mean, David Allen Green, when he was on the show, you remember he's he's someone who talks about replication. He does a bit of a hop, skip and a jump because he goes straight from supporting May's deal avoids the second referendum stuff and goes to revocation. There are other people, I mean, you, I looked at the conversation with him, with the historian Tom Holland, who previously was supporting May's deal, was talking about revocation. Lots of people I speak to just around the place will talk about revocation. Yeah. Um, two things take place to make that happen, I think. One of them is just frustration and the way that the, referendum, the second referendum doesn't seem to be getting there with MPs. Mm. The other is time. Like the more and more you get to the point where you're just staring at no deal, if that's where we get to, and it could easily, the kind of times because we're talking about right now, the only option would be to revoke or no deal. That would be literally the options you're presented with. And suddenly that becomes a more a more realistic option. It's quite funny seeing a number of, and it's anecdotal, it's only on Twitter, I don't know what the numbers are, but interesting seeing a lot of former Leave supporters, Leave campaigners, who are, they're not like they've changed their mind and think Brexit is terrible. They, they just, they've had enough. Yeah, they don't care. It. It's not like they, they're, you know, Remainer now people. Mm. It's more just like, if it was cancelled, they wouldn't really care. Well, it just won't ground them down. Our past guest, Oliver Nogro, was saying exactly this. His, his line was, I think our side don't deserve to win anymore. Yeah. You know, we've yeah. blown it, and, and I don't want it to happen. One more thing, Ian, I think that, that some people might like to have explained, is why uh, did the government um, whip against it, its own motion right. and lose? So this is the thing with amendments. Um, amendments attach themselves. They're like a facehugger in Alien. They just attach themselves to the motion. So once the amendment is passed, that becomes the de facto version of the motion, right? And their motion was an extremely uh, sort of contorted, bizarre one on no deal. It was like, we don't want no deal, but we also recognise that it's the default. All legally true, but it just felt like they were keeping their options open and trying not to upset the no dealers too much. Then the Spellman Amendment comes through. Mm. And they managed... <laughs> Although Spellman had detached herself. <laughs> she, yeah. yeah, she'd torn off the face hugger. So, so she then it gets bullied into taking it away. What her amendment basically does is just strip out all the caveats and go, we don't want no deal under any circumstances. She gets bullied to take it away. But co-signatories can still have it. So suddenly the spotlight turns to Yvette Cooper. And Yvette Cooper's like, no, I'll still fucking do it. Like, mm. I mean, she didn't use that language, because she's a bit more parliamentary. <laughs> I bet she did privately. She may well. Yeah. She's actually quite polite. But anyway. yeah. um, she still puts it forward. Um, and the government is defeated. Now, at that point, it means that the amendment... Um, it's, yeah, the, the amendment attaches itself to the motion. So the no-hold-barred, no-caveats version of no deal suddenly becomes the thing that's voted on. And the government is in complete fucking chaos. It suddenly has to start whipping against itself because it doesn't like it. Now, none of this was necessary. 
their own motion did not need to be as heavily caveated and bizarre and contorted as it was. And even when it came on, there was no real difference between one position and the other. So they didn't even need to whip against the damn thing in the first place. But nevertheless, that was the position that they were in. So suddenly they whip against themselves and lose by an even larger margin than they lost the original amendment for. This completely lunatic situation to be in, which is not based on conviction. It's just based on having no control over your party, desperately trying to keep too much control when you don't have the capacity in which to do it, and this sort of just belligerent cynicism in the manner in which they word things to try and not upset the ERG and to give themselves as much room to manoeuvre as possible. When it all comes down to it, the only thing it really means is that the government is an absolute shower of assholes. It's amazing that it's still going. Incredible. I mean, it just shows you what a bizarre situation we're in. Mm. That that, 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 the, The very thing that is making the government utterly incompetent and desperate is the thing that's stopping it from falling. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the uh, smooth jazz is kicking in as the lunchtime services begin to arrive. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed this emergency aftermath podcast, complete with uh, clinking glasses and cutlery. Um, And it all starts again next week as the Prime Minister insists on voting over and over and over again until she gets results. She matches that court on. The thing that we are <laughs> accused of, she is now doing. And it, well, I suppose, thank you, Ian. Thank you, Dorian. And the only thing to say is see you next Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs>